0: So I found a line in something I was reading this week that I wanted to use for the title of the talk. And it says, Waking up is not a part-time job. So last Sunday, Sunday evening, I found myself in Point Reyes, um, eating supper in a restaurant. Uh, There was a wonderful bluegrass band with really lovely music and close harmonies and the kind that you find yourself sitting there and beginning to kind of boogie along with the music. And um, I was eating, if you will forgive me, a steak. (laughs) Which was followed, if you're ready for this, by a piece of pie with ice cream. And having a really wonderful conversation with a very dear friend. We'd just been on a long beach walk with her dogs and it was just really one of those wonderful, perfect days. And then at some point, as I'm sitting there with the music and the food and the conversation, this thought went through and I thought, what am I doing? (laughs) What does this have to do with what I've been doing for these last several weeks. You know, all thinking of you because you were all still at it, right? All the silent students and it was just about time for the 6.45 sit and I knew you'd be going to the Dharma talk and, you know, I was thinking a little bit about everything that had been taught on this retreat and um, and just, you know, just sometimes thinking a little bit about the stillness of the hall and, which was, of course, utter contrast to where I was in. And I knew I was happy. I was really happy. I was joyful, even. My glass was way overflowing. It was above half full. I was enjoying my senses, you know, the hearing and the tasting and the smelling. So what, you know, what was the connection? And then I remembered something that Jack Cornfield used to like to say at retreats, maybe he still does, I don't know, he was quoting from a sign in Las Vegas, and it said, you have to be present to win. You have to be present to win. So, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I was really there, you know. And I knew it was impermanent. I knew it wasn't going to last, you know. And I knew that the Vedana was pleasant, I knew that. And actually I wasn't, I didn't think, trying to hold on to it particularly, you know. It was just a really delicious experience. So this is what you have waiting for you. You, I can tell you the name of the restaurant if you'd like to know. (laughs) It's not too far from here. But maybe some of you are going, oh no, restaurants, you know how it will be too much, and I could never do that, and too much noise, and music, I don't think so, and even dessert might be a little bit too much. But, you know, life outside the retreat is almost here. It's almost here. And so the real question is, how are we going to do that fully? You know, how does waking up become a full-time job, something that you're doing everywhere. Wendell Berry says, And the world cannot be discovered by a journey of miles, no matter how long, but only by a spiritual journey, a journey of one inch, very arduous and humbling and joyful, by which we arrive at the ground at our feet and learn to be at home. So learning to be at home. How how can we be at home? How can you, when you go home or whatever is your next temporary home, for some of you, how can you be comfortable? How can you feel as you leave here that what you're moving to next is the right place for you to be? Just as so many of you have talked about how this has felt like the right place to be for this time. So, you know, tomorrow is the first day of the second half of the retreat. That's really true. I've often noticed that retreats go on for quite some time, at least as long as you've been here. So if you've been here for a month, you have another month. If you've been here for two months, you've got another 2 months while this all continues to cook along inside of you and to open up and i don't know how many times i've said you know weeks after a retreat and there'll be some little insight that will happen or i'll respond in a slightly different way or i'll see something i never saw before and i'll go oh that's that's from the retreat that's happening because of the retreat and it's like As I've said, it's like time-release medication, and it's going to go off for a while. Or you could consider, as I've said to some of you, that um, you are hatching some kind of new life. Remember Horton? Horton sat and he sat and he sat and he sat in the Dr. Seuss story and finally this new creature arrived and you have sat and sat. You have been faithful 100% just like Horton and now some new life is going to emerge. So there's a piece in the Metta Sutta that has always kind of interested me. It comes right at the very end. And as I memorized it and studied it and recited it over and over again, you know, I'd get to this piece and I'd go, huh, it feels a little different from the rest of the sutta. So this is the part that says, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So as we do our best to inhabit the teachings which we have been given as we inhabit the Dharma, one of the things that's true is we inhabit two truths about reality. There's the conventional time and space world and the world of names and addresses, and zip codes, and phone numbers, and newspapers, and opinions. And then there's the ultimate. When Years ago when Stephen Levine was doing a lot of teaching, he used to talk about the uh, you know, the uh, was the relative world and then there was the uh, because nothing could be said about it. So that's what there was. You know, and in one of the sutta passages about Nibbāna, which is getting close to that ultimate. It says, there is a sphere of being where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind, no experience of infinity of space, of infinity of conscious, of no-thingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. Here there is neither this world nor another world, neither moon nor sun, This sphere of being I call neither a coming, nor a going, nor a staying still, neither a dying, nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. It is the end of dukkha." So what is that, you know? This thing that is so beyond any words we have to describe it. So over the years, in my own practice, I've gotten really, really interested in this place where we have fixed views. By not holding fixed views, the passage says. By not holding fixed views. But we all have fixed views. I have fixed views. You have fixed views. Gil has fixed views. John has fixed views. Heather has fixed views. We all do. You know, That's just how it is in this human realm. Some of you have some strong views about tomorrow and Saturday and Sunday and Monday you know, I've been hearing not only are there stories about tomorrow and the weekend, there's whole novels that have been written that have been arising in the mind, you know. And sometimes they're simple, you know, first I'm going to go to Safeway no, I'm not sure about Safeway. That might be too big, and it's not really very PC. I think I'll go to Whole Foods, but maybe not Whole Foods. That's also too big. How about the corner grocery? You know, And I'll just get a little bit of stuff. But, you know, and then there's this task that needs to be done and that task that needs to be done and the phone call that needs to be made. And, and then I'm going to have to have a conversation with my best beloved, whoever that might be, with, about the retreat and I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say that, and then I'm going to get mad because they don't understand. And pretty soon you're having the fight about how the retreat was really wonderful, but they don't think so. (laughs) Astounding, isn't it, how these stories arise. And we really believe them. That's where they get fixed. you know. Or maybe, as you're leaving here, one of the other things that can happen is you can have an idea about This is really practice, what we are doing here. This is really practice. The retreat is the real deal. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, interview, Dharma talk, lunch, (laughs) you know, like that. But that's the real retreat. And I actually was delighted in doing some reading to get ready for this talk. I came across a story about Ajahn Sumedho in his early years of being a monk. So Ajahn Sumedho, like so many people who went to Asia at that time, was really in love with meditating. He was so interested in learning how to meditate, just as you are. And he was working really hard at it and sitting a lot, you know, late, late, late at night, early, early, early in the morning, as many hours of the day as he could possibly get his body on the cushion. And one day, Ajahn Chah decided that they were going to build a road to a new place where they could have a monastery. So he called all of the monks together and said, we're going to have a work party and we're going to build this road. And... Ajahn Sumedho was pretty upset. He wasn't an Ajahn in those days. He was just the venerable, but nonetheless. So, you know, he did it one day and he really didn't like it and it was messing with his meditation. So he went to Ajahn Chah and he said, you know, this is really a problem. It is really interfering with my practice and it's not helping the holy life at all. So Ajahn Chah was very cagey. And he said, well, okay, you know, if you, and he, so he asked, could he go and practice meditation, you know, while everybody else built the road? And Ajahn Chah said, well, sure, that would be okay. but I want to announce it to the whole community. <laughs> you know, you could imagine, right? So he announced it to the whole community that, you know, that, Ajahn Sumedho, Venerable Sumedho, was going to be meditating while all the rest of them worked and that he had his permission to do that. And so, you know, the Venerable Sumedho went and he meditated for the first day and it didn't feel real great. And, you know, because there they all were. And Ajahn Chah himself was out there laboring away with everybody else, you know, hauling boulders and wheelbarrows full of dirt and all of that. And the second day, it was really awful. And by the third day, he went and he asked to join the work crew. And so, you know, you see where this is going. Ajahn Shah wanted him to see that there really is no division. There's no division. That what happens in the work crew can be just as valuable, sometimes maybe even more so, than what happens here on the cushion." So, you know, Sumedho had a view about what is practice. He had a fixed view that was challenged. Or maybe, you know, we also have strong views about who people are. And probably today you may have had some views about one person or another on this retreat, and today you got to talk to them right? And you found out who's really in there. Who's in there? And I always think, when I think about this one, of a retreat I did a long time ago when I I had a fairly significant Vipassana romance with someone else who drank coffee in the morning, so we had that kind of intimate connection over the (laughs) coffee filters. So, you know, I just thought this guy was fabulous. And, And then at the end of the retreat they had us, this was at IMS, we got to talk to our neighbors, and there they divide the women from the men, so I was sitting next to a whole bunch of women. And I discovered that every woman in my group had had a Vipassana romance with the same guy. <laughs> he wasn't so good about eye contact, actually. And then I got to talk to him, and I didn't like him at all. He wasn't my kind of guy, Never. You know, so it's so interesting how we create these stories and we just hold on to them. You know, or if you really want to look at where we have fixed views, you know, you can consider the people you share your lives with in um, the time and space world because a relationship is the perfect place to begin to have those fixed views challenged. One of the things that I've done a lot of in my teaching life in recent years um, is that my husband and I, Russell and I, have really taught workshops about how you can use your relationship as a spiritual practice. That it is just as serious a spiritual practice as just about anything else. Because if you want to know where you aren't waked up, your partner your child your parent will show you for sure because they're the ones who are right in close to you and and often touch us in those places where we're not quite so cooked and so it, you know we work with a practice of speech a practice of counsel so that we're talking together in a mindful way every day and we work with the practice of surrendering, surrendering our, our own wants, sometimes to what seems to be needed for the relationship. And over and over again, it's a practice of renunciation. And it challenges the views that I have of who this man is in my life. Because I like to think I know him, right? I've been with him for almost 33 years. You know, I would think I'd know him pretty well. I do know him pretty well. But he surprises me every now and then, and it really helps to let go of all of that knowing for a while and not have a fixed view about who he is. So when you go home tomorrow, can you not know who you go home to and be really interested? Who lives there in that body? And if you don't see somebody tomorrow, maybe it'll be the next day or the day after, but there will come a day when you start encountering people that you think you know well. And I invite you to let go of those views about who they are and be curious about who they are today, now, here. And then, of course, there's the story about who we are ourselves. You've all got ideas about who you are, you know, that place where we, So it's so easy to say, I am a person who, and then you fill in the blanks with whatever description you have. And you've been practicing that place of not being anyone. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Several of us did, actually. No one to be. And Gil talked about it just the other night. You have a personality that you know very well. You don't always like it, but you know it very, very well. And it comes complete with neuroses and defenses and histories and oddities and habits. And this sense of self, this personality, is one of the most fixed views that we have. It is so deeply rooted in us. This is me. And I've really loved it in recent days in interviews because people have been talking about how that's getting a little looser. You know, it's like, oh, there goes the Mary Grace personality and she's doing it again. Isn't that... Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's sad. You know, sometimes it's difficult. And But, you know, what I've found is that eventually sometimes you can go, oh, poor thing. She's so caught, that Mary Grace personality. and And that helps to let go of that particular identification. In the time and space world, this world where fixed views are so prevalent, this is a world where we think we have to have things figured out. We think we have to know, we need to know. But you don't. You really don't a lot of the time. And it's so interesting to begin to approach our lives that way, that we don't know. You know our Zen friends have these wonderful koans, these stories and questions that kind of, uh, my experience is they kind of make your mind just fall over and give up because it's impossible to answer them. And so once the mind is lying helpless on the floor, then something else can open up. So, 16 years ago now, Russell announced in our therapist's office, he said, you know, I think I want to go to this festival in the desert. It's called Burning Man. I had no idea what he was talking about. But then, of course, I began to read stories about Burning Man and all these people running around and parties and nudity and all of this stuff, and I was terrified. But, you know, the therapist and, by the way, Ajahn Amaro thought it was a very good idea that Russell should go. So, you know, he went, and for a long time Burning Man was a koan in my life. You know, it was this thing that I couldn't figure out, I couldn't do anything about, it, I kept banging up against it. You know, what is this? What am I going to do? I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't want to go myself. But you know, he kept coming home year after year. He didn't, I was sure he was going to run off with a naked blue babe. That was my profound <laughs> conviction. But he didn't. You know, he kept coming home, he got kind of sweeter and softer and opened up a little bit and some things were happening to him that I'd always wanted to happen, that seemed good. So finally I went. This year will be my fifth year. (laughs) And you know, it's still a koan. I haven't, some people say to me, well, you know, you're a meditation teacher, why do you go? It doesn't seem like it fits. Some people think it fits. Sometimes I hate it, sometimes I love it, sometimes I have no idea what I'm doing there. (sighs) But it seems to have shifted me and things open and change. One of the things that changed is the purple hair, which isn't so purple at the present moment, but wait another week and it will come back. And, you know, even that has become a koan because that opens up doors, and I still don't understand it. So my current favorite story around fixed views that shift there is that a few weeks ago I was visiting my daughter who lives in Texas, just south of Dallas. We were, My husband and I were in the supermarket. We were just doing our thing over by the wall with the dairy products, and this guy comes up. He's got, you know, jeans and a denim jacket. He looks like he's been working all day long. He's kind of dirty and grubby and scruffy beard and, you know, he gets his stuff. He walks away and I turn around and he's coming toward me and he's just laughing. He's just laughing and laughing and he says, it's so great. This is so wonderful what you've done. You know, how did you do it? And why do you do it? And so this guy that I would never have had a conversation with, never, and I had this lovely conversation in the supermarket. And then he went his way and I went mine and that was the end of it. Totally delightful. I have so many conversations with people of all ages, all different races and colors and ethnicities. Somebody said once, it's like you're carrying a puppy and I said, no, 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 I am the puppy, I think. So, you know, it's, it, it cuts into the fixed view that I have I'm just an old lady, you know? And you know, old ladies are very invisible. And if you don't think so, those of you women who are younger, just wait. And I don't know what you guys are gonna do because you don't get to be an old lady. And I don't think old men are as invisible, but old ladies are. We have fixed views. And then somebody does something a little different. And then it joggles that view. So, when we let go of the views, we step into that place of not knowing. You know, there's a great Zen koan where Bodhidharma asks the Emperor Wu, who are you? And the Emperor, who's a good student, or the Emperor asks Bodhidharma, sorry, I got it the wrong way around, asks the Bodhidharma, who are you? And Bodhidharma, great Zen teacher, says, I haven't got a clue. You know, we don't need to know even who we are. You can let go of that view, even in your everyday life, some. You, know, you won't forget how to get home or how to do your necessary business. Don't know. Rilke says, I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live on, live along some distant day into the answer. So when we don't hold on to these views, when we live the questions, that brings us right into this present moment, right into this strange thing that we call now, you know, this place where you've been practicing in recent weeks. Can I stay just now, not in that past moment, not in that future moment, just in this thing which we actually can't really find because by the time you recognize now, it's not now anymore. So it gets a little weird even. And you know, because you've seen it, every one of you has seen it while you've been here, when you come to each moment with that freshness, not knowing, not knowing the breath, not knowing the sound, not knowing what this thing is that you would normally call an itch, then we see it in a way that is different and that is fresh. And sometimes we see something that we've never seen before at all. Robert Bly says, Think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, Think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, maybe wounded and deranged, or think that a moose has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own, whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on the door, think that he's about to give you something large, tell you that you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. You know, you can think and see differently outside of the boxes that we create, outside of the views that we bring to our lives. So in that piece of the metta-sutta, you know, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-desires, is not born again into this world. As we sit here, as you touch that place of awareness, of awakeness moment to moment, When our vision has cleared enough, that's when we see clearly. The word vipassana actually means to see clearly. And when we see clearly like that, when there are moments when there are no hindrances, we are not pushed and pulled and caught by our sense desires. And when we are free of being pushed and pulled and caught by those sense desires, then we do not create more suffering. And when we begin to trust this awake place, this realm of awareness, this changes our relationship to the relative. You know, when you hang out in that place where the uh, then having views which have way more words than that um, begin to seem just a little strange. So how do we stay connected to this place that is is more absolute, is in some way ultimately true? One student who gave me permission to quote her wrote this intention. They said, "...may my relationship to the relative world flow from my confidence and grounding in the wisdom and compassion of absolute awareness." May my relationship to the relative world flow from my confidence and grounding in the wisdom and compassion of absolute awareness." So you have all found ways to connect to this wisdom and compassion. And as I thought about how do we stay connected, I remembered a teaching that I really love and that I thought might be useful when the mind is consumed with time and space matters and overwhelmed with your own views and those of others, and that will give your minds a place of refuge, a place of rest. And this teaching was given by the Buddha to a disciple who asked, where could the mind of a noble disciple dwell once the teachings had been heard? So this is for... All of you dear disciples who have heard so many teachings in these recent weeks. How many Dharma talks did we say last night? Fifty-four or something like that. Some astounding number. And so the Buddha describes that these places where you can live are where you can live evenly amongst an uneven generation and dwell unafflicted amongst an afflicted generation. So he suggests the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, your own virtue, your own generosity, and the devas. So, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. That, you probably even had thought of that yourself. You know, I could take the refuges every day. You know, we chanted the refuges the first night of the retreat, and many of you maybe all of you, I don't know, I do, use them often or every day in your own practice. So we know, in taking refuge in the Buddha, that the word Buddha, the root of it, means awake. And you remember, because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that this is how the Buddha described himself. You know, I am awake. And as you have sat here, hour after hour, day after day, sustaining your gaze, sustaining your gaze on the present moment, you have been practicing waking up to what is in that moment. And you've begun to notice that place of awakeness or awareness that is there, that just sees, that just reflects or shows what is so. No commentary, no views, no desires, no suffering. It just is. It's like the eye of the Buddha that just is awake. That's all. That's all. And this eye of the Buddha is what sees the Dharma. What sees the Dharma. So it sees how we create suffering And it sees all the steps that we've talked about so much, this retreat, that can lead toward the ending of suffering, the ending of the cycles of suffering. And so it sees that there can be that ending of the suffering, and that we can meet our suffering in a new way as we do that, so that these steps and the freedom become available. And this Eye of Awakening sees the Eightfold Path, very, very clearly, wise view, wise intention, wise speech and action and livelihood, and wise effort and mindfulness and concentration. And so in this, in this resting place of the Dharma, we investigate our experience and we check out the teachings. That's so much what you're invited to do. Check it out, see for yourself. Does this work for you? And repeatedly, and sometimes annoyingly, I might say, we discover that the Buddha was right over and over again. If I cling, I will suffer. You know, over and over. And then the third of the places is the Sangha itself. You know, those who are following that path and who are seeking awakening. Awakening. And, you know, as I was working on this this afternoon, I was thinking how much we need each other. You know, look look around the room. Do it right now. Look around the room a bit. Just look. You know, especially look at your neighbors because they held you up. They propped you up, you know. They were the ones who were there when you came in and they'd be sitting so still, you know, or you'd see them walking back and forth so quietly. and Or maybe you'd see somebody who was weeping in the dining hall and your heart would open. We've really supported each other in this process of waking up and opening during these last weeks. You know, we've really depended on each other. It, it's so much harder to do this all by yourself. It is. And so I know we will miss each other. You know, Saturday morning's going to roll around and it's going to be 8.15 and you're going to go, what? (laughs) What? You know, I'm not sitting with all of those people or you'll remember the hall and how so still it is, you know. And we miss each other. We just will, all of us, and so it's really important to find ways to have sangha, you know, as you leave here, you know, whether you meet with other people. Actually, the woman who owns the place that I'm staying po- arrived home just as I was leaving tonight. She said, "Oh, I, I go to a friend who lives just around the block. We sit together for an hour every week." She said, "It's become such a wonderful little sangha and friendship." and they prop each other up in the Dharma. And she said, that's, it's one of the best things that's come out of this practice. So then, there are three more places where you can rest the mind. Your own virtue. Please remember the places where you have been awake enough to keep the precepts, where you have lived in a way that has been non-harming to yourself and to others. It's a very important part of practice. This is a place where you practice being enlightened. Ajahn Sumedho likes to talk about, you know, it's not becoming enlightened, it's that you be enlightened and that we practice being enlightened. And so keeping a precept not harming is a practice of being enlightened. You're acting In an enlightened way, you're living in that place of freedom that we've talked about. You can take the precepts as part of your daily practice, again, something that many of us do. And you can remember to tell yourself the stories of where you haven't harmed, where you've held others with goodwill and kindness and compassion. And you can rest your minds in that place. It is not, you know, somehow many of us grew up thinking we weren't supposed to tell ourselves those good stories about the kind things that we did. Forget it. Tell yourself those stories. It's very, very important, and it will really help the mind to relax. And you can also rejoice and rest in your own generosity. So if you think back, think back maybe before you came here, to some act of generosity that you did. And I am willing to bet that you can still taste how sweet it was to share that time, to make the effort to listen to a friend, to offer some kind of resources, to put cans of food in a food collection basket, whatever it was that you did that was generous, this taste of generosity lasts for a long, long time. Always when I talk about this, I think of one of my earliest retreats at IMS where there were some nuns who were sitting with us and every morning these nuns would chant over their breakfast. And the whole breakfast room, so you could think down here, you know, all the clatter of cups and forks and plates and toasters and refrigerators and tea and all of that, would stop. Everybody just stopped in their tracks. And we just stood there, or sat there, and listened to the chanting, and then we'd go on. So one day there was a big sign up on the board, the nuns are leaving. And if you would like to pay your respects, please be you know, in the lobby at 10 o'clock or whatever. And if you want to make an offering, they'll be in. So I went blasting back to my room. And you know, if in a long retreat, You probably know this. You don't tend to carry a lot of cash around with you. It wasn't like I had a lot of resources. So what I had to offer wasn't a lot. But I put it in an envelope and took it up there and put it in the bowl. And it was, I can still taste that. You know, it was such a sweet thing to do. And it's been, I think since that retreat, it's probably been at least 20 years, maybe longer. And I can still taste it. So you can rest your mind. My mind rests in that generosity. A little, little piece of generosity, not much. Your mind can rest in whatever generosity you can do. It's one of the most basic practices of the Buddhist world and it's something that comes comes first in the list of practices and you can do it every day. There is no day in which you cannot be generous because at the very least, You can be generous with yourself. And there are so many different ways to be generous with others. So then the last resting place, the devas. I'm always startled when I work with this list because it's like, devas? I don't know about devas, I'm not so sure, you know. Devas are kind of like, a little bit like angels maybe, you know, beings from other realms than the human usually helpful, but not always. And so these devas are a resting place for the mind. And some of you may be even more skeptical than I am, and some of you, you know, maybe you're quite familiar with the devas, I don't know. But what I think is important is that this last place points, again, to the picture that is far more than our ordinary time and space reality. You know, we've only got you you only have four inches of gray matter. It's not a lot. You know, there's so much. The, the picture is so big. How could we possibly conceive it all? While you have been sitting here, here's your first piece of news, astronomers have announced that they have perceived the gravitational waves that they suspected were there in the Big Bang that support the theory of an inflationary universe. So, you know, those of you who like cosmology as I do are probably going, wow, I'll have to check that out when I get out. But what it's pointing at is that they are looking back 15 billion years to see these. You know, that's, you can hardly, talk about a koan, you can hardly wrap your mind around that. I can't wrap my mind around it. And it apparently supports the notion that there might be, it might really be a multiverse, not just a universe. So there's maybe several universes, many, 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 many universes. Who knows? You know, we already know there's billions of galaxies just like ours. And in those billions of galaxies, there's many, many billions and trillions of stars. And of course, in all of this, being able to look back in time and the weirdness of space, I mean, the whole thing is very strange. It's all very strange. And we are infinitesimally, infinitesimally small, teeny, teeny, teeny. Even on this planet, each of us is, you know, one seven billionth of the popul- population, not very much. One of my favorite practices when I go online every day is I go to the astronomy picture of the day. I highly recommend it for those of you who don't know it because it reminds me, it's often a picture of galaxies or star clusters or something of that nature. And it just reminds me before I get caught in all my other internet stuff that the picture is very, very big. So I find that this sense of the greatness of being takes me beyond what I can know, points me, doesn't take me there, but it points me toward the absolute. And I can't know it. And you know what? That's just fine. I'm finding, as I get older, maybe it's just age, I don't know whether it's really wisdom or insight, it might just be what happens when you get old, I'm finding that I actually rather enjoy not knowing. It's okay, I can just relax and not know. My mind, in fact, rests. And it allows me to drop some of the views that are hemming me in. So this business of waking up, it can be done anywhere, in your work, in your relationships, in building a road with ajancha in washing dishes, taking care of your animals, whatever it is that you're doing it's not a part-time job and over and over again, we are invited to notice in ordinary time and space where you are imprisoned by your views and opinions, and over and over again, as we practice as you practice in your daily life as you come back to retreats, we anchor ourselves again in awareness, in that which is simply awake, in that seeing clearly that will guide you in wisdom and compassion, and that will hold you in wisdom and compassion. You can do this every day in any situation. You just have to keep coming back to awareness. So Ajahn Sumedho says, again, I read this, I think maybe my very first talk, Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it is a refuge that is indestructible. It is not something that changes. It is a refuge you can trust in. The refuge is not something that you create, it is not creation, it is not an ideal. It is very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice, it's like this. So let's sit for just a moment. I brought a poem that I meant to read at the beginning and I think I'll read it while we're sitting. It's from David White. He says, This chapter is closed now. This chapter is closed now. Not one word more until we meet some day, and the voices rising to the window take wing and fly. Open the old casement to the lands we have forgotten. Look to the mountains and ridgeways and the steep valleys, quilted by green. Here, as the last words fall away, the great and silent rivers of life are flowing into the oceans, and a day and on a day like any other, they will carry you again, abandoned on the currents you have fought to the place where you did not know you belonged. And just as you came into life, just as you came into the retreat, surprised, you go out again, lifted, cloud hidden, from one unknown to another, and fall and turn and appear again in the mountains, not remembering how in the beginning you refused to join, could not speak of, did not even know you were that deep, calm, welling, almost forgotten spring of eternal presence. You did not even know you were that deep, calm, welling, almost forgotten spring of eternal presence. So thank you very much for listening.